Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On this episode, we'll talk with former lawyer and writer David O. Stewart author of historical novels and biographies of such American leaders as Andrew Johnson, James Madison, and Aaron Burr. David is currently working on a biography of President George Washington. And in December 2019, David sat down to talk with bio member and fellow biographer John, better known as Jack, Farrell. So, David, how much do you have to get into the mind of all these people, whether it's um, Woodrow Wilson for a novel, or Andrew Johnson for the impeachment trial, or a full-scale biography like the one you're working on now of George Washington. There are different things I focus on. For fiction, I worry more about how they spoke and the language they used to the extent I can find it, and how I might imagine conversations of the era. I always would read novels written in that era if I could to see how they portrayed language and and conversation. And the brilliant part of historical fiction is you don't have to footnote anything and you can even make stuff up. In a nonfiction book, I want to find examples of a character's uh, speech or writing that are characteristic. You know, when I wrote about Madison and also now writing about Washington, both of them actually had bewilderingly fractured syntax, and um, (laughs) it's really tough to get through some of their sentences. Was that just them, or was that the time? It's partly the time, but Jefferson didn't have that problem. Hamilton didn't have that problem. These guys, you know, this is how they wrote, Uh and their minds worked. And so I wanted to find good examples of that, too, because I think, you know, it tells you something about their etiquette. You know, Washington was always sort of trying to be excessively courteous. And I think with Madison, that was a lot of it, too. So the simple declarative sentence is kind of off limits. You end up backing into the sentence before you actually get to the kernel of the message. So that's just, you know, the research part. Yeah. Is there something that a lesson you take from having written the gripping events of a trial to a novel or that you take from the novel to now your Washington book? I know it sounds simplistic, but it's storytelling. You know, I like to work with history because I've always felt as a reader that the best stories come from history. They're actually often better than the ones people make up. And uh, it's just a question of finding the right moments to emphasize, getting your pacing right. I mean, a lot of it is pretty similar in giving context so the reader knows what's happening and why, has some notion why. And there are differences, too, obviously, between the two. Yeah. One thing that I think is remarkable in your historical nonfiction is your ability to transport us back and make the time seem real. In your Madison book in particular, which is called Madison's Gift, The Five Partnerships That Built America, you open up on the first page. um, You've got Madison at age 32 having already fulfilled four years as a congressman crafting the new nation and having his heart broken by a 15-year-old girl that he's fallen in love with. 
Then you go on in, in a, a masterpiece of writing. You talk about the fact that these are really different times and really different people. Two centuries later, James Madison's America can exist only in our imaginations. Um, and yet you have a ability to sort of capture that. Is it something that you consciously do, or is this just something that, we, that we're born with? I don't know what we're born with, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying hard to imagine it. Uh, it was probably McCullough had a quote I read that we only know the past through the lands they walked through, the buildings they inhabited, and the utensils they used, and the words they left behind. So I try to use all of them yeah. to give a sense of the person, particularly with a guy like Madison, who has sort of been the captive of political philosophers, and he's you know he's this egg-headed guy and. We lose the essential humanity of the guy, yeah. and that's what I wanted to try to get to. And, you know, having him in his his era is a critical part of that. Yeah. I mean, people like scallywags like Andrew Johnson and Aaron Burr um, are a little bit different than trying to write about a hallowed founding father like Madison. And to tackle George Washington, I think, is um, spectacularly ambitious. Do you think that because you're focusing on the political life of George Washington, that you'll be able to make him seem a little bit more alive and less the, uh, the marble statue? I hope so. I'm still working on it, so it's, it's hard to declare victory. I do think uh, one of the things I'm focusing on is his failures, uh, which is very humanizing. You know, we all have them, and uh, he had a bunch. One of his interesting traits, not a, a heartwarming trait, is he hated to admit failure. He's a guy who very rarely, if ever, said he was sorry. Uh -huh. um, there's this one time he's clearly offended his best friend, and he writes this very stilted letter, you know, basically saying, well, I guess I wasn't as nice as I should have been. <laughs> and clearly he'd been rude as hell. Uh, <laughs> and that is human. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of us who can be like that. So I, I try to catch that. But also, there are a lot of things I find compelling about Washington, but one of them was he was such a hard worker, and he was so focused on where he screwed up and trying to do better. And he writes his friends, you know, tell me where I'm making mistakes. I need to know that. He was endlessly self-improving. Yeah. I can't remember who wrote it. It might have been in the Atlantic uh, magazine. But they wrote about him being the greatest horseman of his era. And that's sort of like being Michael Jordan. So on top of everything else, he was this amazingly charismatic athlete. And then we know, of course, that um, the wooden teeth. But you know, after that, it's really hard to get to these guys. And I thought that the way you chose to do Madison was a good route in. And so talk a little bit about that book and how it's set up and why you decided to do it in that manner. Well, I wanted to do him not as a great political philosopher, but as a working politician, which he was all his life. He was a really fine politician who also happened to be very smart in thinking about political structures and uh, larger ideas. And I wanted to find the guy behind it all. And it struck me as I thought about him that he really almost always worked with somebody else on something important, on his major tasks. Um, and, you know, you can trivialize it. Uh, you know, he's a little guy, and he's sort of naturally found allies. He had a not big personality. He could be quite charming in small groups, but he was not, you know, Washington walked into a room, and 
every eye went to him. He was taller than everybody else. He moved more gracefully. I mean, just his whole life, people wrote, oh, my God, I saw George Washington last night. What a guy. And with Madison, it was much more likely, oh, I hear what Madison was there last night. I didn't see him. <laughs> um, <laughs> just he, he was easy to miss. And in order to have the sort of impact that he thought he should, because, frankly, he knew he was smarter than most of the people he was dealing with, he looked for ways to make these alliances and partnerships. And I think it was an expression of who he was as a person as well. He liked working with people. And so it, it seemed like a, a way into him. And to be blunt, it also allowed me to write about these other people who were right. very interesting. And those five were? <laughs> Hamilton, Washington, Monroe, Jefferson, of course, who was his great partner, and Dolly, uh, which was my last section and, frankly, was the most fun uh, because I write mostly about political figures. I've had little opportunity to write about women, and they're way interesting. They see the world differently. Uh, this is not a blinding insight, I know. And it, it really was a hoot. Yeah. Uh, what, what I loved about it is that if, if you read a standard biography of a person who had lots of interesting friends, they get lost in the chronology. There might be one paragraph somewhere in a biography of Jefferson that talks about the special relationship he had with Madison, and then you go another 100 pages, and all of a sudden Madison and Jefferson are doing something together again. Um, but this is a kind of biography. It's not really a group biography because it settles on one person. It's, it's a great way, I thought, of approaching a topic, and yet you've abandoned it for George Washington. Why? Washington was the alpha male. Uh, <laughs> he didn't need partners. And uh, he did form partnerships through his career, but it, you know, it was mostly people seeking him out. Uh -huh. uh, that wonderful song in the Hamilton show by Miranda where, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have Washington on our side? Everybody understood that if you were standing next to Washington, you, things yeah. went well. Yeah. So the structure didn't work. And what I wanted, decided to do was try to trace his development as a political figure. I think we tend to neglect that. And it's a great arc of the story, a trajectory, because in his early years in the French and Indian War, he's basically a catastrophe. Um, he's politically self-important, inept. He alienates everybody who ever was superior to him. And he finally leaves military service basically because nobody wants him. When he shows up again 16 years later at the Continental Congress in 1774, he's George Washington. He's got all the moves. He's really good. And so I wanted to show how bad he was uh -huh. and then show that this period when it's sort of the quiet time in his life between the two wars, which people tend to neglect. You know, and he was in the colonial legislature for 15 years he served as a judge on the county court. He had a lot of experiences that are really interesting. They're not as well documented as the rest, but they're places you learn a lot. And then to show him emerging when he becomes commander-in-chief of the army as a sort of full-blooded political operator of the first order, uh, and then try to take a few episodes of that, which was hard to control. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's the biggest problem because... I was going to focus on just a few episodes, but then you have to give context. You have to explain what's going yeah. on in between. It was so, a long war. 
Yeah, and then you you know, then you have the constitution and then yeah. you have the presidency. I mean, there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. It's a big life. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. How many pages is it going to come in at? I uh, I can't be definitive. Uh, staying under 500 is important to that's, me. That's good. So, you know, I, I I think I will. Yeah. One question that I get no matter who I'm doing is, you know, what's there new to say about yada yada? You know, why are you doing Nixon? Hasn't everything been said you know, about Nixon? And especially with the founding fathers, there's a lot of paper in the case of the, of the big names, but there's a limit on stuff that can be used. So it's not like you can go out to a, an archive in Idaho and dig up a bunch of letters that George Washington wrote that nobody's found before. So how do you get a contract to do a book on George Washington? And then how do you as an artist go about trying to solve that problem? I'm not a believer in the you need to find this secret treasure chest of documents that nobody's ever seen before. I think there's a lot of different ways to understand big lives, probably small lives as well, to be honest. And my attitudes are formed by the fact that my first book was about the Constitutional Convention of 1787, about which a couple of dozen books have been written that were still in print. And, you know, I read them all and, you know, some were better than others, but I thought, well, I have something to say. I have a view that I think is not really accounted for. So I think it's much more important to develop your vision of what you want to say, what you think this life uh, means, and then you've got to be able to persuade a publisher to, that it's going to work. And in doing so, you needed to write a great proposal? I mean, what? Uh, writing a proposal yeah. is important. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was really lucky that, you know, th that first proposal got accepted the yeah. way it did. Because now, you know, ever since I've been writing mediocre proposals, <laughs> getting away with it. <laughs> did you go to an agent who taught you how to write a proposal? Did you I, read a book about how to write a book proposal, which is what I did for my first one? Yeah, I went online and I, I read things. My agent, who was a lovely man, didn't offer any ideas about that. And uh, But he did know some terrific editors, which was a, uh, more important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't understand the key to proposals because I've had proposals I thought were fantastic and editors sort of shrug. And I don't get it, but, you know, that's... Yeah. What makes horse racing? Yeah. What made you decide to leave the courtroom or the um, appellate court and uh, write a history, even about such an amazing topic? And, and why did that topic? Oh, you know, shout out to you. I was done being a lawyer. I had loved it for 25 years, and and then I didn't. I really didn't want to go to work, uh, <laughs> and that's a, that's a sign. Um, <laughs> And I actually started trying to write fiction and got, a, got my agent, my first agent, he was representing a novel, which we got rejections from 22 of the finest publishers in North America. And uh, then I just said, well, you know, I've had this idea for a book about the Constitutional Convention, which had come to me years before. And he said, uh, well, you know, it's a lot easier to sell nonfiction than fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that sounded good. Yeah. So that's when I wrote the proposal. Yeah. As a practicing lawyer, I did a lot of constitutional law work, and I had uh, spent some time with Madison's notes, been blown uh, away by them, okay. and I thought— Madison's notes for the— Of the Constitutional Convention. And um, Madison's notes are the diary of the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, it's about 75% of the sources yeah. we have. We know that he, it's kind of disturbing. He kept editing them through the rest of his life, which, <laughs> you know, you kind of wish he hadn't. <laughs> But it remains the best source we have, yeah. and uh, 
it is often confirmed by other sources. Yeah. I mean, that's terrific. I love the I love the answer to that question when I ask people. It's like, you know, how did you end up writing you know this book? People ask, well, how did you end up writing a book about Clarence Darrow, Jack? And I said, well, you know, when I was fifteen, right. my sister gave me Irving Stone's book for young adults on Clarence Darrow, and it stuck with me. And so uh, these different varying influences can hang around and, and cause you to pick somebody later in life. Well, and as you know, you can't write the book unless you really care. Yeah. I mean, you've got to go face that person every morning or that yeah. story, and you better find it interesting and yeah. you better touch something. And then you chose something which looks like genius today, <laughs> <laughs> which leads your website, I noted. Um, yeah, we, we flipped that around. <laughs> we flipped that around, uh, which is the story of Andrew Johnson's impeachment. And again, I, I sort of loosely categorize this as as your trial books. They're not trials. They're, they're political processes more than they are um, trials. But um, those three, uh, and then you followed up with uh, with Aaron Burr and his trial for um, treason. treason, all really show the historical figures were manipulators, they were sly, they were crafty, and uh, I particularly loved the portrait of the unsaintly Jefferson in the Burr book. But uh, did you talk with your agency? I'm going to stick with historic trial type. Did he try? To, he or she try to typecast you into that first one was good. Let's do another one like it. Or they were my ideas, and to be yeah, I was trying to stick with my strengths. Yeah, I know from reading books about those trials that as a trial lawyer, I read transcripts of trials differently. I have a I think a better sense when people are finagling and when people are not saying what they really mean and when they're laying a trap. Uh-huh. And I love the drama in the courtroom that you get. So I thought that would be an advantage. Also with the impeachment book, I was trying to parlay the constitutional identification. And I, I did ask myself, so when is the next moment that the constitution mattered to the uh, Republic? And you know, because day in and day out, it, it's important, but it's not like, you know, well, we might fall apart if it doesn't work. And certainly that was true at the Constitutional Convention. And I think at the Johnson impeachment trial, the stakes were incredibly high. And so that seemed to me a, a wonderfully dramatic opportunity. So you're, you're going along and the um, first one is the Constitutional Convention. Then you do Andrew Johnson and impeachment. And congratulations for foreseeing that this would become immensely relevant again. Did that come out before? That came out after Clinton's impeachment. It came out after Clinton. Okay. And, you know, I didn't realize that this was going to be a refrain in American political life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not supposed so, to be, I don't think. No, um, but, it, you know, it's it's okay by me. It's an ill wind that blows no good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the book is, is doing better than it had been. Yeah, bad for the country, good for David. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do you find that when the media call you up and say, well, compare Andrew Johnson with Donald Trump, that they have some sort of grip on American history, or they're just saying, oh, that guy was impeached too, so let's get an impeachment expert up? It's all over the lot. All over the lot. There are people who are extremely well-prepared and really know what they're talking about. And then there's folks who are just, you know, on deadline and they're trying to slap something in. And, you know, that's real life for them too. And as a lawyer coming into the field of history, which is populated by historians and folks with doctorates, do you find resistance? Do you find uh, skepticism in the reviews? Um, how, how does that di- dynamic work? 
one of my favorite reviews of my first book was in some academic journal, and the guy concluded with, by saying, I don't know why they publish books like this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, but the fact is I'm not writing for him. Yes, uh, right. I'm writing for people, a uh, general audience. And I worked real hard at going to original sources, not relying on secondary sources. In, in my notes are... I try to make them real complete so people can double-check me and correct me if I'm wrong, which has happened. But it's not universal. There's, there's plenty of credentialed historians. A great example is Gordon Wood, who, who, who bemoans the fact that historians don't write for a general audience yeah, and, a, and, and applauds people who do. It's a huge debate right now in yeah. the history profession. between, yeah. um, uh, and Coming from a journalistic background to mm-hmm. uh, biography, I am incredibly conscious about footnotes and yeah. original sources. And I think that in, in, in a weird way, it makes the stuff better. I mean, um, as a lawyer who's crafting an argument for a judge or for a jury, you have to be able to tell a narrative and to be persuasive. And as a journalist, you have, a, have to be concise and tell a little story in every um, piece. It's different training than a historian brings to the table. Yes. And as a lawyer, I always had in my head the question how is the other side going to make fun of me for saying this? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, wh- wh- what am I vulnerable to here? What's the counterattack? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure as a journalist you would worry about, you know, what am I leaving out? You know, what, I'm writing a profile. What's he going to say I got wrong? Uh-huh. And that's a very important voice because uh, it makes you worry about getting it right yeah. and not overstating your case. I mean, what? I mean, I just did a revision this morning where – one of my readers was complaining about something, and with just a very few words, I could answer his problem without changing what I was saying, but it was a way I didn't – I had said it too strongly, uh-huh. and that's something you have to be careful about, and uh, I do think you know legal background helps on that. Yeah. Um, one thing I uh, enjoy is that you do have fun. Um, I guess it was a reading at Politics and Prose, oh, bookstore the, here in Washington. Yeah, and uh, all of a sudden there in the crowd is James Madison himself with a powdered wig and uh, um, a ducktail coat. And uh, he stands up and takes questions from the audience while you sort of sit there bemused. And when he goes on a little bit too long, you had to sort of usher him off the stage. But, but that, you know, that shows, I think, that in many ways that we take ourselves way too seriously when we do this. We work really hard. We want to get great reviews. But part of also writing a book is just you, you know, is getting in a room, even if it's at a bookstore, with friends and family, and and having a good time and enjoying the fellowship. You know, it's my second career, and it's just been a blessing and a gift that I've been able to have one. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it's possible to be cranky about books that don't quite hit and people in you're dealing with who don't meet your expectations. But the fact is, I'm extremely lucky to be have been able to make that transition. That was author David O. Stewart speaking with bio member Jack Farrell on December 13, 2019 in Washington, D.C. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day.